Welcome to the Changemakers Podcast, produced by City Current and brought to you by Lipscomb and Pitts Insurance. This show shares personal stories and insight from those who are giving back and making a difference so we can learn and do the same. We cover life lessons, business advice, passion, and purpose. Now here's our host, the CEO of City Current, Jeremy Park. To the Changemakers podcast, produced by City Current and powered by Higginbotham and Lipscomb and Pitts Insurance. I'm your host, Jeremy Park. On this episode, we're diving into innovation, transformation, entrepreneurship, and the power of purpose. We're honored to be joined by Michael Graber. He's managing partner of Epic Pivot. And let's start out, Michael. How are you doing? I'm doing so well. And I'm so honored to be with you, Jeremy. Thank you. Absolutely. So you and I have crossed paths and known each other for a long time. You're doing tremendous good, and we'll talk all about that. But let's start with just a little bit of your childhood story. Give us a little bit about your childhood. Yeah, so I grew up in Memphis and uh, just loved it here. I had entrepreneurs on both sides of my family. My mom's father had the first private label luggage company in the in the country and they were run out of president's island in memphis and on my father's side they had graber's five and dime mercantile stores which turned into shamebergs which turned all the way into goldsmiths and macy's through acquisitions so that's um, cool i come by it very honestly um and then through that just grew up here and my, my my joy and thrill was always music so i grew up in high school and college uh, playing in bands for extra money and got to know that side of the city and its heritage very, very well. And, uh, and then have just been on a mission. I moved away several times, but wanted to come back and be a force of good in the city's renaissance. I love that being a force of good for sure. And when you talk about being a force of good for good, talk about the creative elements, because I think with entrepreneurship and with being a musician, so much of that is around creativity. So talk about some of those lessons that you saw growing up, but also to playing music and how that's parlayed over. Right. And I'm one of those that thinks beyond category. All the lessons in any aspect of life are transferable to business and, and smart businesses know that. My MBA uh, or MFA thesis was also in poetry. And so I, I taught creative writing when I started. And if you look at the very nature of business and entrepreneurship or, or even nonprofits, the idea is to make something of value, to do some good in the world. And the term poesis, which it means to make from where we get poetry comes into play. So if you're talking about new value creation, new ways to get unstuck and think about the market in different ways. It's a very creative endeavor. So at the heart of what we do and at the heart of who I am is working with people to help and organizations to help realize their potential, their inherent potential, and give them some creativity to think about things in new ways, to reframe it, and then solve problems in ways that they didn't know they could. So I consider myself creativity, creativity coach at an organizational level first and foremost. So all of the trial and error, not getting stuck, entering in kind of a growth mindset. And if you want to learn that, just get in a band because the, the looks and, and uh, the ways that people will talk to you, the way that you first have to learn the forms to be able to then improvise with these things, all those lessons are true in business very much. And even if you're going to go and market and brand yourself from creating a band name to the posters to hanging up and doing all your street marketing. You know, there's so many lessons inherent in, in that world. 
I think that's one of those where being in a band is a lot like being an entrepreneur, just like you're saying, and you can learn a lot for sure. What's one of your favorite memories around the music career for you? Um, let me see. One of my favorite memories around the music career is being able to play with a lot of my heroes now. And so even now uh, I um, am able to work as a session musician sometimes and get called in for records out of Nashville. There's a gentleman named Floyd Vance who was on Ed Sheeran and Elton John's label of Warner UK. And he came and he really wanted to get a Memphis Americana experience. And so they called in the best and the best. And for some reason they called me too. But then to be able to work with him and be able to just live in that Memphis spirit and go, it reminds me, my next door neighbor growing up was Betty Crutcher. And Betty was a producer and songwriter in the late stacks period, late 60s to the early 70s. She co-wrote Who's Making Love for Johnny Taylor. Many other songs had her own album. And I just love Betty. And so my, my favorite memory, I would have to give homage to her. I grew up in Germantown when it was still in the country but she was the first African-American woman of self means to move out there and say, hey, I exist. I have my own money. I have my own power and your rules and uh, milieu don't apply to me. You know, I'm going to live well. Thank you very much. And we're still very, very good friends. Very cool. What's something that I, I think for entrepreneurs or growing up around entrepreneurs, you see things as a child, like doing the payroll on the kitchen table. And so when you talk about seeing your parents as entrepreneurs, and as a child, sometimes you don't realize they're entrepreneurs, they're just doing the payroll on the dinner table or you know, solving these challenges. But what's something that stands out to you as you look back is some of those formative memories of, of seeing the entrepreneur side within your family? Well, thank you. So, so one of the foremost memories for me is my father led later um, a, a separate company than the luggage company for my mom's father. And at one point they were sitting around, my mom actually did the payroll for the company. So we literally were sitting around the kitchen table and there was a bumper crop of profit one year. And there was a long conversation around the table while we were making dinner of whether we were going to go on a really exorbitant, expensive family vacation. I think we were going to go to Hawaii or if we wanted to split it up to everybody in the plant. And um, my mom talked my father into being very generous, giving away to the point where he was uncomfortable. I almost wanted to throw up. He was giving away so much money at the expense of us taking a, a, a very, very, we still had a decent vacation. And, you know, obviously they were the company owners and runners. So they were able to uh, enjoy the perks, but uh, the idea of giving gener generously and the debate about what's the right thing to do as an entrepreneur was seated in that moment. Yeah. And I think those are important conversations as a youth where you look back and once again, you might not realize it in the moment, but later on, you're like, I remember having a conversation around the power of treating our employees, you know, well, and what that would mean and how my mom and dad had a, you know, a conversation around that. And you think now those sort of purpose-driven conversations, they still happen today, but you know, where do you fall on that spectrum and what do you do when you have a windfall and investing it back in your team that is the one that's creating all the success? So I think these are all formative moments when you look back and then obviously sharing the lessons learned going forward. Talk about Epic Pivot in terms of what you do. So let's start on the business side. Go ahead and describe your efforts with Epic Pivot. Sure. So Epic Pivot is a consultancy and we lead organizations 
through purposeful transformations where we help them redefine what value is, set up their North Star of purpose, and then help them also change their structure and their strategy to align to that purpose and create more value in that way. My secret ambition is to make business a force of good in society by working and, and working in this more enlightened model. And I, let's delve into why that works and why that makes good sense for people, for communities, for the planet, and also for the companies later. But we also do a lot of our innovation insights and strategy services that we did previously as a Southern Growth Studio before we rebranded. But now we like to do them for these purpose-driven companies and help them to achieve more scale with their purpose that way. And I think everything, when you look at the trends, which have been going on for a long time, consumer purchasing, employees in terms of where they choose to work, everything is fueled around purpose. And people want to do good by, you know, supporting the organizations that they work for or financially, um, you know, purchase their goods and services from. And so I think it's a really powerful thing when you look at what does purpose mean and driving forward for you, where do you like to start? So when you're sitting down with these companies and asking the questions and getting a feel for, you know, where they are, what are the questions you like to ask? What are you looking for? Well, that's a, a great question. And typically, we'll find people in crisis. And that you also have to ask, who are those people in the right size organizations? And so I'm going to talk for too long here uh, in, in to, to get to your answer. And that is that we like to focus on mid-sized companies that are either led by founders or the second generation um, comes typically 30 to 50 million, uh, up to 500 million, maybe They've sold part of the company to what we'll call an enlightened private equity group or a family office that has a long hold on them, but that understand the value of aligning to purpose. And a lot of these are old guard manufacturing companies where they've been suffering common ailments. One, they're hemorrhaging people. Two, there's conflict around priorities and where they want to spend resources and how they want to grow. And then third, They've lost their competitive edge in a lot of cases, and they're just trading business back and forth with competitors without realizing who and what they are and how they're creating value. And so if we start with those crises and with, with, with that target, we then will say, okay, we, by, by going through our process um, and really first starting in this discovery and being very, very open, looking at your orthodoxies, looking at what could be taking assessments of the leadership team, we're going to be able to discern sort of the points of nine alignment and then come up with a North Star that's true to you and open in the market. And then from there, we're going to be able to change the strategy, the structure, and then handle all of the change management to make sure the culture is on board and excited. And there are many reasons to do that. One is that it's proven that if you want to hold on to your people, you can guide them with purpose and meaning, right? And one of our maxims here is that we not only live in a world where there are climate issues and humanitarian issues, but there's a a crisis in truth or meaning. And then if you look at the famous Google study, Project Aristotle, and Project Aristotle is where we look at the components and factors of high performance teams. And so everyone talks a lot about uh, psychological safety. And that was their foremost tenet. But their third tenet was meaning through my work. And the fourth was purpose through my organization. 
And no one talks about those, but for lack of that meaning and purpose, as well as the trust that's in psychological safety, we have the great resignation, right? So that's one way that we talk to them. Another is that this has been proven again and again and again. First in the landmark study by Raj Sisodia called Firms of Endearment, and then on many longitudinal studies afterwards. Companies that align to a purpose that, as you mentioned, there's so much consumer and B2B rationale and, and pressure to do that as well. Nonprofits and governments are proving ineffective at solving a lot of our social problems. So it's now up to the private sector and they could benefit. However, the most cunning thing here, and this isn't the reason to do it, but it is an outcome, is that companies that follow this process and align to a purpose outperform just the money alone, their profit driven only competitors somewhere between 8x to 13x to 1, right? So do you want to leapfrog your competition while creating a positive legacy and a net positive effect on the world? Who wouldn't answer yes to that question? Absolutely. I think it's one thing to be talking about it. It's another then to put it into practice and actually, you know, have it manifest. When you talk about making a strong purpose statement, infusing that purpose within the culture of the organization, in other words, making it real instead of lip service. Right. How, how do you start to kind of phrase the purpose and, you know, make it kind of grow through every area to, to really be strong in the culture? What are some of your tips around the purpose statement and having it permeate the culture? Right. And we're very careful not to do purpose washing, as you're talking about, because that's that's the new trend. There's some brand agencies who will help you. And it becomes, sadly, as lampoonable as some of those aspirational posters on a wall that people will just point at and laugh. Right. It's it's a it's a blank platitude. And we're not in that business at all. We really offer an authentic expression of purpose. Therefore, I talk about changing the structure and the strategy that's, so once it's articulated and once everybody's aligned to it, we try to be succinct and tell them really memorable seven words or less. And it's, it's not a marketing slogan. This is inside, it's a tuning fork for how you want people to interact, interrelate and react to each other, to suppliers and vendors and, and, and others, to competitors and with, with customers, right? And so that, that's a through line. But then when I say embed it into their structure, that is into their operating system and even to their governance. So if, if they're looking at quarterly results, we have them look not only at financial results, but results around purpose at an equal weight, right? So if it is around human flourishing there, training people just to be better people, say not only for the sake of their career and their career path, not only upskilling, right, but, but really helping them with life skills, credit skills, all those pieces. Look at what that means tangibly and how far we've come in that journey. And if we're not actually manifesting um, good metrics on that journey, what we need to do to change it and have that be a board level conversation, right? Yeah, I think so that's a powerful example right there of just, yeah. you know, like measuring it and putting it as a part of your success metrics so that you know when you're grading success, it's not just revenue and net profit and things like that. It's literally how are we 
manifesting our purpose statement? How are we treating our employees, our, our partners? So all of a sudden now, if you're measuring it, you can track it, but you can grade against it as part of your success. That's awesome. That's right. And so if it, that happens to be a double bottom line company where human flourishing of their employees and profit are very important to them, but they're measuring both bottom lines and every job description has KPIs around both. You don't have to name a company or, or be too specific on this, but give us an illustration of working with an organization and making that sort of epic pivot. Sure. Happy to do this. I'm happy to name organizations. And we work mostly on the corporate side, but we also work with schools, churches, nonprofits. Um, so I'm going to mention Lausanne School. And we did this. So we just came out as Epic Pivot in February, although we've been doing this as a Southern Growth Studio for 15 years. And this was almost 13 years ago. We got called into Lausanne School in Memphis, Tennessee. It's a private school. And they just had a lot of conflicts and a lot of conflicted priorities around how to best manage, how to stop the hemorrhaging of people. They were losing a lot of students at that time. They were also constricting in land and there were lawsuits onto the campus from their neighbors. And they didn't know quite what they wanted to do when they grew up. And so they called us and said, we can help. We've got a process, we've got a methodology. And a lot of our process comes from the world of innovation where we start with these human-centered design practices, but instead of doing them with customers, we do them inside. So we met in small groups and really unlocked a lot from all of their teachers, all their administrators, but then we went back through all the strata of the, of the organization's past. So Lausanne School, it used to be a Montessori school, right? Um, and then it, it was um, a boarding school. And then after that, it was the school where you sent kids from other private schools who got in trouble for selling pot or whatever, you know, just small offenses, but you could send them. Or if it was the, the, the child who needed an individualized education, and so it was almost like looking through a prism. Lausanne could mean anything that you meant. And they didn't know their core identity and then their core purpose based on that identity. And what I like to say is the truth is always at hand. So why we had all those conversations, we were also using a lot of observational methods. And we noticed that they were people from five continents who went to school there, right? Um, and it was really the most diverse worldly global place um, in Memphis, Tennessee that I had seen. Um, and that was, so we started asking some questions and scratching the surface. And at that point, they were thinking of either becoming the most technologically advanced school. They had this laptop program that they were starting to, and, and other aspects. But then once we started talking about that, they said, yeah, we really do. I don't know why, but we don't have a lot of the call it the baggage of some of the Memphis private schools where you have to be in this country club to be part of the, the life fit, et cetera. And so that's really, really interesting. How are you celebrating all of this diversity? So we ended up recommending that their purpose be the place to make global citizens ready to enter the world meaningfully, right? So that was, and that became their purpose. And the way they activated that purpose was that they set up for Memphis's first international baccalaureate program and lots of sister school programs all over. Um, they set up almost like the United Nations where they put up flags representing all the countries of their studentry, uh, which was it's beautiful. They still do that when you go and see. They also celebrate meals and holidays and let the families participate very, very deeply. 
and then um, very pragmatic ways too, we worked with a lot of um, corporate HR departments and realtors. And, and as the realtors are, are talking to people who are looking for corporate jobs coming in from Mumbai or Pakistan or Central America or wherever, they, where there's this one school that's kind of like the United Nations, right? And so they started getting all these pragmatic drivers to their purpose. Now, they are one of uh, really one of the most successful private schools here with one of the largest attendances and, and great placement into colleges and beyond. So, yeah, that's a perfect example. So good job. I like that. And it also you. shows too the North star creating clarity, which then creates way more opportunities because once you realize everybody's on the same page, this is the direction we're going. Look at all these new ways we can leverage you know, these sort of uh, relationships and opportunities yep. and global perspective. And, you know, even like you said, then reaching out to the realtors and the HR departments, because it gives you a whole new opportunity to open the floodgates in terms of taking advantage of who you are. Yes. But around a very clear sense of purpose that uh, has been established. So I that's think right. That's a great example. Yeah. And I would just say one other thing that it's, it's curative of those who don't belong. So they had one director who was in charge of technology who wanted to become the most technically astute school. She left and went to work for a software company once they made this decision. There was another director of curriculum who wanted to be a process school, and that's based on the individual proclivities of the student. He left to go to a process school, right, once that declaration was made. So it, it truly is magnetizing of everyone who aligns with the purpose, and then just gently pushes out those who, who don't think it's the right move. So we've talked about the power of purpose, the trend of consumers driving it, B2B, B2C, also to employees choosing where to work based on the social good, the social impact, the volunteer opportunities, you know, that, that purpose statement. What are some other trends that have your attention? When you look at this innovation space, especially for corporations, purpose-driven, what are some of the other trends that have your attention? Right. So I'm going to take a little bit of a step back and answer your question through a windy road, if I may. And that is that right when the pandemic hit, I turned 50. I'm going to get real personal and vulnerable. Um, and I started taking account. We had been in business 13 years and worked, if you can look on our website, you know, it looks like a NASCAR, the Fortune 1000, which is wonderful. And we've made all these companies millions and millions of dollars going into new business models, new channels, and taking them from a product company to a service company. Wild stuff, great stories, lovely people. But I had a kind of a so what move, uh, moment. You know, we've made so much money and we have, um, but in terms of the social needle and the human needle, what have we done? So then, I got deeply inside um, conscious capitalism, which is a movement. I get Raj Sodia as part of it. And that's the triple bottom line of people, planets, profit. Um, and I started talking about that on the innovation circuit. I've written a book and speak at a lot of conferences and everyone would nod their heads and say, oh yeah, that's conscious capitalism. That is uh, Patagonia, Ben and Jerry's, God bless them. That's not the way it works in the real world. So I realized that there was this middle niche of these privately held companies who think that that's just other. And the more I looked at the issues of the world, which we, we talked about, and we don't need to get into that space, 
and how the private sector could not only play a bigger role in curing a lot of our social and planetary ills, but profit by it, do well by doing good, to quote Benjamin Franklin, the more I thought it was our job to, and our purpose to then rebrand and set out that shingle. Because we'd been doing this work under the radar since we started, but we didn't make it our stock and trade. And so then I started talking about it with my innovation colleagues and we went through, we, we merged with a company called Pedal in Knoxville. And Pedal uh, is, is led by Jay Morgan, who was one of our clients. He was the global VP of innovation at Bayer Consumer Care, Merck Consumer Care before that. We worked with them. But if you look at innovation and how it works, it's all these human-centered techniques that we've talked about. And it all starts with empathy listening very deeply to the unspoken wants, needs, and desires of the people for whom you're creating products, services, or experiences. And if you understand that, you can create something of value instead of just creating a lot of stuff and having to market and advertise it and maybe take off or not. And it deals with that waste ratio. So Interpol does this this survey annually of failed products. 97% of products that are launched annually fail. And that's because... They didn't work for real needs for real people. They just were created to make money. It's kind of empty, right? Um, But then the more I was talking with Jay is that the more you do this human-centered work and the more you see the lights come on inside these corporate innovators, the more empathy leads to compassion. And what do you do with compassion? And what does compassion at scale in the private sector look like, right? And so that's a lot of our work now is, is now that we've had that little low watt revelation What do we do with that? And what does that mean for our clients? This is Jeremy Park, CEO of City Current, personally inviting you to Growth Current. Growth Current is our e-learning and online personal development platform with City Current. It's an opportunity to attend virtual events with global thought leaders, national guest speakers, and experts who can help you grow personally and professionally. It gives you access to success secrets, lessons learned, learning modules, and so much more. Subscriptions are only $8 a month, and you can do bulk subscriptions for your team. Check out growthcurrent.co to learn more. What are some things around when you look at the gap for those business leaders that say conscious capitalism, I get it. Sounds great. How do I actually activate that? How do I put that into real world practice? I think there are many, and I see this every day on my end as well, who say, I do want to get involved. I do want to have a higher purpose. I want to feel like I'm making a difference, especially with my organization. I just don't know where to start and how to how to blend and marry all of those elements together within a workday. And so a lot of it then becomes, let's guide, let's throw out some tips, let's figure out what what is right for you around things like volunteerism, you know, picking things like, okay, these are the things that we're going to fight for, whether it's, uh, you know, disaster response, adults, youth, sports, like picking your lane, so to speak, but then looking at an asset kind of an asset allocation around, okay, we've got conference rooms. That's something that we can loan out to nonprofits for free to let them use for their meetings and events and spaces. We've got trucks we can loan out. We've got camera equipment and videographers and social media experts and things like that. And so once you start realizing and you do an audit around your resources with your team and your physical you know, assets, you've got a tremendous opportunity to be able to 
really activate in not only the nonprofit space, but just the larger community space. And so carry that forward in terms of some of the things, the gaps, the recommendations to make it easy for companies to start to put their foot in the water in this. Right. Um, it actually is the most simple thing. And I'm also going to a- a- answer this one for with kind of a long winded thing. A lot of it is unlearning what's taught in MBA school or how we think about the defaults of business. So how we think about business has come across as um, a tenet of the industrial revolution. And it's been codified by MBA school and all our management theories, even how we think about um, labor as human relations, as cogs in a machine and that are replaceable is a very wrong-headed notion from Robert Winslow Taylor, the first consultant who thought that all the artisan and craftspeople didn't matter in a factory, right? But it's very, it's dehumanizing from the start. And even the way we've hand-selected certain things, you always hear in the world of business, especially in the sort of Jack Welch 80s school, it's dog eats dog, it's Darwinian. If you read Origin of Species, right, you'll see that he mentioned the word love 400 times, the word, the word community more than 300, but he only mentioned survival of the fittest three times, right? We selectively do that. Similarly, when we talk about Adam Smith and the wealth of nations, profit only, that's not really what he was saying. And he wrote two books around the same time. Um, the Wealth of Nations, and also the Theory of Moral Sentiments. And the Theory of Moral Sentiments was all about the role that businesses played in the welfare of community, right? But we threw that out. And so so if you rethink what business could be, and then I I am going to gently prod on yours, because I think what you're talking about what the model of volunteerism and corporate giving and wonderful things, but what, but what we're talking about is an embedded way to put these practices in motion, right? So let's look at Ben and Jerry's as a famous example. If you're going to be a supplier for Ben and Jerry's, right? This, just, this isn't on a videographer uh, or volunteer time, but it's, it's just baked into everything they do. But if you're just gonna be a supplier, you have to create a very good product at a good price, what you want from a supplier, but you also have to meet a social good. And so Grayston Bakeries in Long Island, New York, right? They provide all the brownie batter, all the brownies and all the cookie dough. And it's about 200 million a year. And then they also sell to other people. But Grace, and it was only, you know, several million when they started. Grayston Bakeries doesn't consider itself a bakery, but it considers itself a turnaround shop for lives in trouble. They only hire the unhirables. They hire ex-cons, ex-felling, and, and recovering drug addicts. And then they give them life skills courses, and they teach them to restore their credit and to have healthy relationships. And they break that systemic downward spiral and, uh, and almost, uh, we'll call it uh, mark on some of these people where they couldn't get traction anywhere else in the world. But if you put it in, and that's where I said you need to change your structure, right? you make it part of how we do business. So it's not just a volunteer effort with five or 10% of our time to show our goodwill, but it's built into the business model very much. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I, 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 and I think that to me, it, it doesn't have to be an and or, or an, an or, it's an and, and it's all right. above. And it's also too, uh, that's perfect. You're baking it in. Yeah. I even think about when you talk about, you know, just other trends, 
the the Tom shoe trend, the one for one sure. model idea, you know, and obviously that's not right for every business, but what that did is back to your, you know, kind of busting myths is it took the idea of, okay, well, philanthropy is if you have a good year, you know, all of a sudden, then you give some money away at the end, because all of a sudden you realize what happens if you don't have a good year, all these money, all these nonprofits that are relying on these dollars won't get anything versus baking in the charitable cost of giving into every single transaction. So it wasn't necessarily that the one for one model in and of itself changed. It's that it really changed giving to make it more sustainable. And I think these are the things you're talking about where it's like, no, wait a second, bake it into every decision you're making so that it's sustainable, but it's making an effective difference versus it just being, you know, lip service over here or one or two small things over here. Now it's fully ingrained in the organization and every decision you're making. That's right. And a lot of times it's a long time multi-tiered answer. I'll give you an example from one of our clients. We work with a container client. We've worked with them for a long time. And we helped with their strategy and their purpose. And ultimately, they're a plastics company who in 10 years want to not be in plastics anymore. Um, And so there are so many different points of activation from from how they're looking for supplies, how they can source it, how they can get decent prices on it to offer it to their very large clients, you know, the ConAgras of the world and the Cokes of the world. Um, And then from there, what they can do in the meanwhile, setting up recycling streams, making sure that more than 7% of their stuff, which is that that's the percentage of plastics one or two actually get recycled in the US right now. Um, and a lot of that's because the recycling streams broken. And here in Memphis, they have become the lead donor in both the cleanup effort and the, the funding of the Wolf River Conservancy that are responsible for the new R- Wolf River Greenway. So, and, and they, they start that way because they know that they've had an impact on the earth and that hurts their heart, so to speak, corporately, and they want to make it right. So their purpose is making it right while still recognizing the very pragmatic need to contain human consumable goods. What have you learned personally in terms of how you maybe have changed your outlook and the way you go about, or I'm just thinking, you know, obviously you mentioned 50 being a pivotal moment for you looking at, okay, look at what we've done. Yes. But in the greater scheme of impact, what have we done? And that being, you know, obviously putting you on a different trajectory, what's an experience or something that you've learned from working with a client that has really changed your mindset in the way you think about things? I'm very quick to apply the heck yeah rule. Only if we get really, really excited and see that it's fertile ground for change, will we even take on a project or we'll just, if, if someone just wants to change by increments, we, we won't work. We'll be very honest and forthright with them. We used to compromise more, um, but now we have uh, involvable principles, right? And, and so if they're not really willing to change or if they just want to do purpose washing, we really would say we wish you the best, but we're not the right firm for you. So it's to gauge the sincerity of those who want to undergo some type of transformation and then go from there. And we've, you know, we've walked away from more than we've done. So many people want to kick one off just to change the politics so they can position themselves Machiavellian to be the winner after everything's changed. It's really strange. You know, some people are very uh, deviant. <laughs> we'll say that. Well, have, have you, when you look at even just that growth of saying, okay, not everyone is right. I want a heck yeah moment. I want to know that they're all in on this. 
Have there been some specific learning lessons on your end to say, okay, I walked in and we went through this, but wow, I learned this. And now that kind of changes the way I look at things over here. Any aha moments, yeah. in other words? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm going to give you a, a, a kind of a soft skills moment. We, we, we try to practice what we preach. And I went through something called the inner MBA program where um, it's a lot about how to apply mindfulness and other aspects in business. And I try out a lot of the exercises with my team before we take them to clients. So um, we are our own guinea pigs and experiment. So having those meetings and that safe forum to do that. But I would say one of just not setting up policies just to have policies and, and embodying the principles of the place. So we were talking today about setting boundaries, being self-managing. When we set up our company 15 years ago, we did not have a vacation policy. We did not have a sick policy. We trusted people. Even then, it sounds like it's normal now, but it was revolutionary when we did that. And then the feedback my team gave me was, but what I really like is that you don't just say that and then silently expect us to answer the phone when it rings at eight at night or six in the morning or to work on weekends and to email us back because we're all working organically. We say, if you don't miss meetings and you're hitting all client objectives, that's great. You know, you set your own, but, but their feedback to me was that when you go on vacation, you really don't respond. And when you say you need some time off or you need to go running in the middle of the day, you just tell us and that because you model that, that's okay. And my response was, that's not out of virtue. You know, that's because I used to be a workaholic and owning a small shop. You know, I was working 20 hours a day, sleeping three, drinking a lot of uh, energy drinks until I had some autoimmune disorders and my glands blew out because I was overdoing it. And I would never want to put that on another human being. And so it's up to me now to model that behavior. So that's one example. Carry that forward into advice, general advice for other entrepreneurs. We have a lot of entrepreneurs who watch and listen to the podcast. And so for you, obviously, as an entrepreneur, what advice would you give them? The first thing I would say would be brave, be bold, be purposeful. And then that and really just go for it because the world needs you now more than ever. Uh, Be bold, be brave, be purposeful. And then after that, I would say, and this is something I learned in the world of music, right? Playing gigs. They, they often say the cliche is leave, leave the audience wanting more, but really you have to leave yourself wanting more, right? You have to leave your tank. You have to leave a little bit of gas to get home, right? So, um, you know, push yourself, find your limits, and then make sure you have enough and that you're feeding every dimension of your life. Otherwise, it will consume you right? That mask won't come off anymore. I've had to learn all those lessons myself. And even when you think of the power of recharging and you can't give what you don't have, you got to recharge the battery. These are all lessons because, you know, you do, you want to make a difference. You want to burn the candle at all ends and go, 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 go. But you have to recharge. And, And like you said, too, realize that you're the role model, you're setting the example. And so there's a responsibility there for you to set the tone and the culture for your organization as well. And that's, and what we're talking about, I think is the mindset with which you approach work. And, you know, we think for a living, we have to be discerning. We have to have objective, critical thinking. You can't do that. You know, if you're tasked out and your calendar is redlined for a week, you need some, some, 
some elbow room to be able to think clearly. So. What's some of the best advice or what's the first that comes to mind from either your parents, a mentor, a role model for you, but advice that they gave you that's been really beneficial? That's a great question. Um, I think my, my dad always taught me to be respectful, reverent, and to aim for humility, right? Um, and he would always say, you know, love the people that you're working with love the industries you're working in, be reverent of their problems, even though they're not your problems. So that was always very, very helpful. Reverence, humility, and love. Yeah, which carries over to create empathy and caring and understanding, which then, to your point before, that's what allows for creativity. When you can make the connection and connect with people, it leads to a lot more possibilities and opportunities ahead. And that's right. And he also was an outside of the box thinker. And so he would let me in and say that even the way we've structured this business might not be optimum. What if we pulled these levers? So to be able to zoom out, I owe to him as well and think about things in new ways. What we say in the innovation world of reframing, right? This, this almost epic reframing um, comes into play. You mentioned the book. And so I do want you to give a little bit of a teaser, but going electric. And so talk about the book. Yeah, so so a lot of what we do is is custom research and consulting for companies, and we get so deeply inside the dynamics of what they do to create new value that the only way to make sense of it was to write a weekly article. Um, and so that's a collection of maybe a third of the articles I'd written um, and really just field notes, really just to help me be more articulate and make sense of everything we were learning. I'm working on another book now, so... Um, Stay tuned. And that's on purposeful transformations, epic pivots. Nice. Well, let's make an epic pivot of our own and do a lightning round. So these are short questions, short answers, just a fun way to get to know you better. But uh, let's start out. What do you like to do to relax? I like to play music and cook. So what uh, what are your go to instruments? I play uh, often mandolin, guitar, primarily other things too. stringed instruments. When you're stressed out, what's your go-to song to play? That's a great question. Um, I can't answer that. I, I know thousands of songs. And I've written <laughs> hundreds. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's very situational. Sorry. <laughs> what uh, What's a song that is yours that you wish everyone knew about? So, what what song should we go and Google? So, one of my bands that has my name in it um, has two albums, there, but we've got another forthcoming album and a song called Waking Up, which really is all about a human waking up, but the, the, the species waking up and businesses waking up and us meaningfully and positively impacting one another. So, look for that in the fall. Nice. When you have guests come and visit Memphis, where do you like to take them? I take them to Graceland and the barbecue shop in Midtown, typically first. Maybe Sun Studio. And so when you're out eating in Memphis, what are some of your favorite spots? My wife and I really like Indian food, particularly Southern Indian cuisine, dosas and biryanis. And so the Hyderabad house out east on Winchester toward Collierville is um, very much worth the trip from Midtown. Absolutely. Nice. Where are your favorite spots to vacation outside of the Mid-South? I love Mexico and going and, and, and exploring the different regions of Mexico very much. Yeah. I haven't found a region I don't like, but each for their own reasons. 
what's a family tradition or something that you and your family enjoy doing? We're very close family. I had four children and I was the single father to three of them. So um, we get together, we cook, we cook a lot and make very large feasts regularly. Nice. I like that. And then what's something on your end in terms of like a movie, a show, what was something that you enjoy binge watching? <laughs> I really love Better Call Saul. I just think, you know, if you're going to watch the decline of humanity, that's a, those are good field notes. Yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> great drama what is a quote that inspires you you don't have to get it right but just you know yeah yeah, yeah. what's a quote that inspires you so um there was rabbi uh, heschel said that um remember above all things to treat your life as if it were a, a, a work of art and know what to leave in and what to take out you are creating your legacy with every move you make and you, uh, you've done tremendous good and you still have so much more ahead, but many, many, many years from now, what do you hope that uh, your legacy is not only here in the mid South, but you know, among everyone that you've been able to impact. I really think that reframing business to take the private sector and especially that small and mid mid market and have these companies go through these purposeful transformations and leaving legacies in their own backyards in the community where there were one other client of ours went through one of these purposeful transformations and right at the point where they were going to sell the company. And instead of selling to private equity and making a few multimillionaires, they, they got their exit, but they ended up reframing as an ESOP and letting everyone at the company, and this was a, a manufacturing company, everyone in the plant suddenly was worth several hundred thousand dollars. And that's real empowerment. And so if we could do that at scale and think about economic justice and economic equity and really raise the standard of living for so many people, that would be what I would wish for my legacy. That's awesome. I don't even need to be known if that can happen. Right. That's, that's awesome. I, yeah, I, I love it. Share website, social media. Where can we go to follow your efforts to follow Epic Pivot as well? So where do we go? So thank you. EpicPivot.com is the website. We end up posting a lot of our articles. Many of our partners write regularly and, and publish frequently. You can find me, Michael Graber, on LinkedIn. We're also on Facebook and Twitter and everything else with Epic Pivot. Well, Michael, you are a change maker indeed. Thank you for all you've done and continue to do, not only for the Mid-South, but beyond. Thank you for coming on the podcast. We appreciate it. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Changemakers podcast, produced by City Current and brought to you by Lipscomb and Pitts Insurance. To learn more about our guests and share your stories of others leading by example, visit us online at citycurrent.com or follow us on social media using at citycurrent. Please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast wherever you listen. Now, think big, start small, and act now. Be a change maker.